Welcome back to the Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we are trying this for what I do believe to be the fifth time. I started out this way last time too, so maybe I'm jinxing it. The universe doesn't want you to have this episode, but we are going to give it to you. We defy the universe. That's right. Mm-hmm. Screw you, universe. I, I'm glad you said that, not me. Well, yeah, I'm a lady, so... Um, we are going to be talking about episode three of Twin Peaks, but also sort of episode four of Twin Peaks. And before we get to that, we hope you had a lovely holiday. Lovely holiday. This is the shortest, a little behind the scenes, the shortest time from recording to releasing, provided I can get my button gear and get this edited. We're going in one, one take. I'm sure we can do it. Like we're in a Roger Corman movie. Yes, our budget is about zero, so that seems right. And we are... uh, Anything interesting happened to you? Thanksgiving. Ah, and it was? It was lovely. There was lots of food. There was lots of food. I ate myself sick. I I went out of town. Oh, no. (laughs) I went out of town for four days and came back expecting no leftovers, and there were... Lots of leftovers, mm. so that was a little bonus for me, and I just got to have a piece of my pumpkin cheesecake, so huzzah, and now it's gone. <laughs> the end. It was an exciting story. Yes, I know. It had a beginning, a middle. Okay, we're going to do this thing. So we are looking at episode three of season one of Twin Peaks. This episode is called Rest in Pain. In pain. So much pain in this episode. And it was written by Harley Payton and directed by Tina Rathborn. It originally aired April 26, 1990. Those don't sound like real names. They are real names. Harley Payton and Tina Rathborn? Harley Payton and Tina Rathborn. Is she in relation to Basil? No, Rathborn. Rathborn, okay. Yes. Hot in in the time period in April of... 1990, was Jeeves and Worcester. That was kind of a gangster pronunciation. Worcester. Worcester. I bet they pronounce it Worcester. Yo, yo, Worcester. It's a Laurie Stephen Fry thing. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of it. And also the David Suchet. How Mm. do you pronounce it? Is that right? I believe so. I don't know. I've never heard it. Version of Poirot. We'll come back to Poirot later in this episode. Oh, that's right. It was World Intellectual Property Day, but not in 1990. That started in 2001. So the biggest thing happening in April of 1990 was this show, it looks like. Absolutely. So we're getting in on it. Um, Would you please read us the Wikipedia synopsis of this episode? Latin for synopsis. That's right. Cooper tries to deduce the meaning behind his strange dream the night before. Later, at the funeral of Laura Palmer, emotions explode over her grave. Norma Jennings learns that her husband, Hank, is up for parole. Sheriff Truman reveals to Cooper the existence of a secret society known as the Bookhouse Boys, the society's mission against the evil of the woods of Twin Peaks. Laura's cousin, Maddie, arrives in town. All of those things. All of those things. All of those things. And we've learned some things since the first time we recorded this, so we'll pack all of our new knowledge into this seamlessly. It's a concentrate. That's right. Uh, So this episode starts with Audrey in the hallway, seductively waiting? I don't know why she needs to be so seductive when there's nobody around. She's practicing. Uh, Yes, it does seem so. 
Um, she's waiting outside of Cooper's room. Now, I was excited to get to this episode because I thought, it's the end. We know who the killer is. Cooper knows. He's going to tell Truman, and we're all going to go arrest him together. And then, and then I guess that's the end, even though I know that it's not the end. There are many, many episodes left. In the, he, he, Cooper comes out and meets up with Audrey, and they go to breakfast. He invites her to breakfast, or just, he's just like, you're here, and you clearly want to go to breakfast with me, so let's do the thing. He's aware that she's infatuated with him. I would hope so. By the way, that opening moment was a great moment in the history of saddle shoes. I think. Did it stay on her shoes for a long time? Um, they really like that she wears saddle shoes, and we see I a lot of them. I think that that, along with Sybil Shepherd in The Last Picture Show, the other great moment in the history of saddle shoes. I don't have any knowledge of that. That's probably for the best. Oh, awesome. So, Cooper brings Audrey down to, to breakfast. It's very early in the morning, about 7 mm-hmm. o'clock in the morning. Um, and asks her to write her name down and knows, as she does so, that her handwriting is the handwriting on the note that was slipped under his door that said, I believe, Jack with one eye. Audrey does admit that she puts it, she put it there for Laura, despite not being friends with her. Uh, she says, I understood her better than the rest. And when Cooper presses her for more information, Audrey tells him that One-Eyed Jacks is a place up north. Men go there. Women, you know, work there. Uh, But we don't know if Laura did. Audrey doesn't know. Cooper doesn't know. Uh, He learns that Laura and Ronette worked at the perfume counter in Audrey's dad's store. Horns. Horny's department store. And then Truman and Lucy come in, uh, very eager to hear Cooper tell them who the murderer is, since it had to wait until this morning for some unknown reason. And uh, Cooper simply uh, proceeds to describe the dream that he had, the red room and the small man and the woman who looked like Laura but wasn't Laura and Killer Bob. And now, of course, he doesn't remember what Laura whispered in his ear. And so he, he refers to his dream as a code that needs to be broken. And their job is simple, break the code, solve a crime. A phrase, apparently, that Lucy writes in her notebook. Break the code, solve the crime. Everybody follow along in your books. Cooper and Truman are called into the morgue where there is a fight happening between... There's a lot of fighting in this episode. There's a lot of fight, yes. People are putting hands on each other. It's true. Uh, Albert wants to continue his investigation. We have the town doctor, Donna's dad, there saying, we've got to bury this body. It's time. I mean, it's only been a couple of days, but... Apparently, it's time. They're not used to it. They're from the backwoods. I guess, but... And I understand that certain religious traditions have burial rules and things like that, but I don't think that these people fall into any of those particular traditions. I think the burial might have to do, in this case, more with... If I'm going to take it realistically, which is very difficult to do with this show, because so much of it doesn't seem to be intended to be taken realistically, Mm. it's um, a step towards healing the community. Right. And but at the same time, don't you want the medical examiner to do his job so that you can find the murderer? Wouldn't that also heal the community? The argument seems to be that the actual presence of the body defiled the way it does is harming the community somehow. 
I think that there might be more at hand, yeah, or that's more going true. on, which is right. So it's wants Donna's dad wants mm. the bar- body buried, but also Horn, Audrey's dad, is there, right. quote, on behalf of the family. Right. Um, neither of the Palmers has appeared because they are busy being is he secretly related to her. Maybe. There's a whole lot of adultery in this town. There is a whole lot of adultery in this town. I would not be surprised if... Do you think he's got a third woman? His wife and Catherine and possibly at one point Mrs. Palmer? Mrs. Palmer, that would explain her hair. I mean, how? She has adulterous hair. Maybe that's... you uh, know, I'm going to need you to actually explain that sentence that you just said because... I wonder why. are you saying? Why Horn's daughter mm-hmm. feels that she has so much in common with Laura Palmer. Yeah, and we wonder it, about that. Is it because she's a sexualized or very sexual adolescent? Right. Is it because she understands the male gaze or being exploited? Or is there another reason that we're not aware of just yet? Right. And she does talk about, was I don't know if it was in this episode, but she talks about how Laura helped her brother, and so for that she was grateful and she right. loved her for it. Anyway, so there, the Cooper Trooper, Cooper and Truman, the, Coop, the Coopsters, the, <laughs> I want to come up with like a weird ship name for them. Anyways, um, go into the uh, morgue, and there's two men against Albert, who is being a dick. This man is incapable of having a human conversation with anyone uh, and is berating everyone to their faces. What do you think his diagnosis is supposed to be? Oh, I don't know. I don't I know mean, that even... Is the idea... Because originally when he's introduced, the notion is he's brilliant, right? but he has real problems speaking to people. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to understand at any point that he's in danger yeah, of Yeah, my guess is that... Is that they put him on the spectrum somewhere, maybe an Asperger's, um, someone who doesn't understand compassion and other people's emotions. Right. Um, but and that could be anything from sociopath to autism. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of. Things. But he is very good at what he does. He's of course he is. Yeah, but he's is, a dick. Right. And he seems to be a dick on purpose. Like he's not just calling people stupid and moving on, he goes in on his insults. Insults, Like, they are crafted. Do you think he's intending to... Well, actually, they're very, very funny as well. They are funny. Do you think that he's trying to provoke violence or trying to provoke a response as a way to get attention? He might be, or as a way to... Mm. I mean, as a medical examiner, this is bordering on that thing where the people in CSI carry guns, and I'm like, yeah, no, that's not, you're not supposed to be investigating crimes. Like, is he trying to see who the violent people in the town are? That's not his place, and it doesn't seem like it's his, if he had his druthers, I don't think he'd deal with human beings at all. But the the insane level of insult that he Mm -hmm. does is, and that might just be the absurdity to add to it. But Truman stops being able to deal with it and decks him. And Now, what was the description that he gave of he it? He calls it like a... I keep thinking for some reason, hayseed sucker punch. It's I know it's something sucker punch. Sucker punch. Hayseed could, be, uh-huh. could very well be what it was. But it was the furthest thing from a sucker punch that ever was. I saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Everyone saw it coming. He wound up. And yeah. was it, it was an overhand punch. Like, it was, it came, 
he had all the time in the world to get out of the way of that dude's fist, and he opted not to. And Cooper basically just shuts it down and is mm. like, we're going to bury... He sides with the town people. We're going to bury this woman. You've got what you have. Do the, do the tests on what you have mm. and give me the report, period. Um, do you think it's basically Albert just being... Because we're giving a, a balance here where Cooper is fascinated by everything that happens in this town, from ducks to trees to whatever. Yeah, his... And Albert is the exact opposite. He absolutely rejects everything that goes on. Right. So there's sort of a yin and yang. Yeah, a little bit. Like, why? why yes, Cooper is a little uh, disbelieving as to how Albert could be missing the greatness right. that is Twin Peaks, right? But Albert just wants... Although... I mean, I feel like it's Albert's job. He is a expert with the mm. FBI, right? right? His job is to go to small towns that don't have good forensics teams and be their forensics teams. Forensic team was that, that a really big thing at the time, or was that? I mean, what do you mean? I mean, oh, you mean small towns were not going to be equipped. That's kind to of what when you're looking to program after the fact. Yeah. That's one of the things you don't catch. It's like, in the period of time when this was taking place, was forensic uh, forensic teams the way that we see them now depicted in television in particular? Things like CSI and criminal minds, groups that come together and investigate. Was this even a big uh, Well, even criminal minds was is FBI who mm-hmm. go to small towns right. or even big cities that can't handle what's right. being thrown at them, and that's true now. Mm. This is almost 30 years ago. And of course, a small town where the medical examiner is also the doctor is not going to be equipped to deal with basic crimes. That's, you know, what what Albert catches is what is going to get past the family doctor, particularly when it's the person who... Well, and the family doctor couldn't even... Yeah, he couldn't even bring himself to do it, so he didn't even do the original exam. He had somebody else come in, so... So then we cut over to the Palmer house. Leland is taking some kind of sedative, and they're getting ready for the funeral. It's interesting. They're having her body released in the morning, probably well, it's going to be like 7.30 in the morning when all mm-hmm. this is going down at the morgue, and the funeral is going to be that afternoon, and they're not giving the uh, undertaker, unlike the embalmer, the undertaker much time to do right. his job. Um, which I think is a little weird too. Like I feel like they'd want at least a day to prep, right? But maybe I'm wrong. And he's watching uh, Invitation to Love, <laughs> which is yeah, that show is something. Um, last lots, week, lots we, of wigs. Yes, <laughs> last week we saw the in, intro. This week um, we see Emerald and Jade twins. And I, I didn't see that coming, honestly. Emerald and Jade. And then um, that's like sort of poking fun at the twin thing that's all, right. all, uh, often done. And then later we have our twin thing right. in the show itself. Um, as he's watching it, Madeline, Laura's cousin, played by the actress who plays Laura, enters the scene. So we're watching a parody of a thing and then the thing itself happening in the show right. and being mirrored in the same scene. And then, oh, I guess there is the little bit of of the director or the writer saying, you can't mock us for this. Right. We're already mocking it. It's like, we know. <laughs> we know what's happening. Then we go over to the 
the, the diner, and Norma is meeting with uh, the attorney for her, husband Hank, who is up for parole, saying that there's a good chance that he might get out, um, and then he hits on her grossly. Yes, he does. He's like, you're quite the girl. How do you, you know, basically, how do you beat these men off with a stick? And she's like, I tell them that I have a husband who is in prison <laughs> for, like, attempted murder or something. Right. Oh, I usually tell them, what does it say? I have a homicidally jealous husband who's doing three to five for manslaughter, but he expects to be a productive member of society real soon. <laughs> like, hey, asshole, you know who my husband is. Right. What? Um, I, I, uh... And yes, Norma is a beautiful woman, but come on, dude. He's, yeah, the lawyer's it's not some inappropriate. an appealing character at all. Um, Behavior like that, he could be a film producer. And then Cooper and Truman go out to the woods to investigate or interrogate Leo. And Cooper really is leaning towards Leo because of the rocks in the woods in the prior episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leo doesn't really do anything to help his case. He sort of lies about having an arrest record. They ask him, do you have a record? And he's like, you know, nothing but kid stuff. And then Cooper is like, what about this, 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 and this? Right, because, exactly. of course, he's pulled the record. Which makes you like Cooper even more. He's very sharp. And it's really a pleasure to watch Kyle McLaughlin do these scenes where he plays wide-eyed and innocent and then suddenly well, really that's the lays thing. into somebody. He gets in, he lays into him. Right. And then at the end of the scene, he switches into, yeah, four-year-old, look at the ducks, baby ducks, baby right. ducks. exactly. <laughs> um, and it's, it, I'm really getting what made him such a compelling character in terms of mm-hmm. television. He's just very... And why David Lynch likes him so much and right. uses him so much. Right. Because I had forgotten that he was in Dune in he addition was in, he was to... Paul Atreides, which I just saw this weekend, or the weekend before last, I think. Um, I and then I know he was in Blue Velvet, Blue Velvet. and then he's in this. So um, Then we go over to Bobby's house, uh, Floppy Bobby, um, and he's staring at a giant crucifix on the wall. It, it's almost life-size. And then his dad um, comes down... They're talking, Bobby's smoking in front of his dad, which, you know, because he's tough and cool, I guess. There's kind of a put-up toughness about this guy. Well, the fact that his dad will punch him at the dinner table. (laughs) I mean, you know what it feels like a little bit? Is the character in It, the bully character in It, right? So he's getting beat on, so he needs to puff up. And then... His dad ends with saying, you know, Bobby, don't be afraid. And Bobby's like, I ain't afraid of nothing. I'm not afraid of any damn funeral. He's he afraid of hardly wait for it. And then he say, he yells, I'm going to turn it upside down. It's not a rave, dude. This is like a Gloria Stefan song, right? Turn it upside down. I don't right, think exactly. that's what she <laughs> intended. <laughs> I think that's what she intended. He is a wreck. And then we go into, I guess we're at the police station again. And uh, Albert's going to present his autopsy results to Cooper and Truman. Toxicology results are positive for cocaine to the surprise of no No one. one. He also says that there were two different kinds of twine used to bind Laura and Ronette, mentioning that Laura was tied up twice that night. At one point, her arms were pulled back. 
And then um, Cooper remembers that in the dream, Laura had said, sometimes my arms bend back. There, he, she's got distinctive uh, bites and marks on her shoulders, possibly from a bird. A bird. And then bird. there's a small object with the letter J uh, found in her stomach. They're going to do tests on it to see what that is. This feels like the Sesame Street portion. This stomach contents is brought to you by the letter J. Yes, it is. And then Truman leaves, and Albert pulls Cooper aside, saying, I'm going to file a report against this rube, and I'm going to have his badge for hitting me. Cooper is not, he's not having it. He's not endorsing this at all. He does, no. He's like, the way that you acted... Um, you're lucky I don't file a report on you that buries you so deep in a building in Washington that you never see the sun. And there are those buildings in Washington, I'm told. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the Pentagon is mostly that. Mostly underground. Right? It yeah. seems very short on top. Yeah, I feel it, like it, it goes real deep into the ground. Sort of like a like a drill bit or something. Like a <laughs> big cone. An ice cream cone of evil. No, I, I don't know. And then um, we go over to Ed's house, and Nadine hugs him. She like runs. She runs out of the like the back room mm-hmm. at him, and I was like, oh, "She's gonna take him out." Well, it reminds me of a uh, paranormal activity. Yes, uh, with the actress's <laughs> name, the one who's sort of thumping and taking running charges at people and yeah. crashing through doors. I thought, oh no, this nothing good can happen. No, me. yeah, I really thought she was going to take him out, but then she wraps her arms around him and she hugs him because when he dripped all of that oil from the car onto her cotton contraptions on her runners, he inadvertently made the silentest of silent. Dra- uh, drape runners, and she thinks that that's going to be their big break and they're going to get rich. I don't know how much money. I mean, maybe she's going to be like that woman, Joy. Right, exactly. And she's going to have a QVC Lubricated fortune. runners. She's going to go on Shark Tank. Yeah, that's it, and get lots and lots of money. What would, I guess Shark Tank, I think, is a remake of Dragon's Den. So if she is going on anything at all, it would probably that's be That's sort of a Dragon's downgrade Den. from Dragon to Shark. Well... Canadian to American. And Ed tells her that James is home. And Nadine says, James who? And we know that James is Ed's nephew. I presume that also means that that's Nadine's nephew. But she cares about nothing and nobody but her rowing machine and drapes. Did she utterly destroy her rowing machine? I seem to... She broke the... Like, she snapped or bent mm-hmm. one of the handles. I don't know if it's beyond repair. I've never tried to uh, fix the rowing the machine. The hideous feat of strength. It was real hulky. So, James says that he's not going to go to the funeral. He, like, can't... He can't bear it or whatever. Then we go to the funeral, and the entire town is there, except James. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reverend gives a sermon to her memory, um, and then at the end, Johnny, Audrey's brother, shouts amen real loud, and then this is apparently Bobby's cue to turn it upside down, and he starts yelling amen like a person in an asylum. Like he is crazed with his amenitude. And then... He turns 
basically turns on everybody at the funeral and is like, we're all hypocrites. You're Well, he says you're all hypocrites, but also you, Bobby, also you. Um, mad at your girlfriend for cheating on you as you actually, whatever. Anyways. Um, You're taking this very personally. He's a disaster. He's a garbage person. Basically, he condemns them for knowing that she was in trouble and doing nothing about it and where the, the whole town is to blame for her death. And then James shows up, decides apparently after all that he does want to go. And then Bobby fucking launches himself at him and then there's a brawl it's a whole brawl and while the kids are fighting Leland Palmer has lost his damn mind and is sobbing over the body of his daughter like laying on the casket and then and then the thing that raises and lowers the casket goes haywire and he is like on the casket and the casket's going like bouncing up and down it's Suggestive and weird. It is both of those things. And then his wife yells, don't ruin this too. (laughs) I'm like, oh, Leland ruins things. It's strange to think this is broadcast in 1990, right? Or when, right? 1990? Yes. Because the implications of that scene are so gross. Yes. I want to believe that they are not what right, VR but I'm looking at this uh, the, that scene and it's played for laughs, and I'm thinking to myself, "Am I more not offended?" Is not the word. Is the implication of incest mm-hmm. more offensive than the implication of necrophilia? I couldn't get which one of those two. Yes, or por qué no los dos? As I'm watching this, I'm going, "Oh, oh, this is." No, this is not... And, and it, but I, it doesn't feel like necrophilia, though, because he doesn't he's on want... the casket. Right, but he doesn't want this person to be dead. Right, but the so watching the, the casket bump up and down while his body's yeah, laid across it is a rough scene, and it still, at the same time, is so offensive as to be kind of funny, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part of the, the show, is the... the the humor they find in this very strange... Right, it's like heartbreaking right. and funny at the same time. Uh, it reminded me of the um, the host, the Korean film. I know what you mean, but I the don't know what you mean. The scene where they turn up for a girl's funeral and all her family members try to outdo each other by wailing. Oh, that's right. And in the end, they're, they've gone so far trying to outdo their grief for each other or for their, their missing family member that they literally are falling down, rolling over each other on the floor, bawling at the top of their lungs. Oh, good grief. And, it's, and again, it's a scene that's uncomfortable because it's funny and it's bizarre. But you're just like, but it is. okay, yeah. fair. Okay, so then we're going to go back to the diner mm-hmm. where Shelly is reenacting what happened with Leland with a napkin holder uh, to a laughing group of men, which is funny and mean. <laughs> um... And then Truman, Hawk, and Ed are meeting with Cooper. They're all there, and Cooper isn't there yet. And Truman and Ed make a bet, but we don't know on what. Um, but Ed is like, he's not going to... I'll take that bet. I don't think it's going to happen. Cooper comes in, sits down, and I think Norma comes over to offer pie. 
two words isn't exchanged. And as Norma walks away, uh, Cooper goes, you know, how long have you had a thing for her to Ed? And so then I guess Ed has to buy the pie for being outed by Cooper. And then they're like, we like you. You're weird. We've got some weird things that we'd like to share with you. Join um, our weird club. And they talk about how there's an evil in the woods. Wendigo. We don't know that. Wendigo. It is an unknown evil in the woods, and that they are tasked with staving it off and protecting the town. This has come to them through their parents. So they're a backwards version of the Knights of Templar. I guess so, yeah. And they're called the Bookhouse Boys. Secret Society, Secret Society. It's a really terrible name for the Secret Society. (laughs) Um, And they go ahead and take Cooper to their secret headquarters called the Bookhouse. Fittingly, I guess. If you change the name of your location, I bet you could get yourself a better name. <laughs> right? Not many places in town. I mean, well, yeah, just change the name of this one place. Um, and there's a janitor from the Roadhouse, Bernard Renault, who is, I assume, Jacques Renault's sibling? Maybe nibbling? I learned a new word. Okay. Nibbling. That's Nibbling is, well, it wouldn't be nibbling, though. Cousin is what I meant to I say. I thought it was a German opera. A nibbling is a, um, is a niece or nephew. Oh, okay. It's just a non-gender-specific word for those. And so Bernard is tied to a chair because that's legal. One of these people is a police officer. And, oh, and that's the other thing is they talk about how Ed is working undercover um, to try and expose the people at the roadhouse because their drug, they think that that's where the drugs in the town are coming from. Cooper's like, I didn't know you were a deputy. And it's like, I'm not a deputy per se. I'm a bookhouse boy. What? He's a secret agent. <laughs> secret agent. He'll take away your number name. He'll give you a number and take away your name. What is it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and so Bernard, Bernard, how do you say it when it's French? He's there. He's tied up. He's mad. Le Bernard. He has like an ounce of cocaine on him that he has from when he crossed back uh, into the fr- into the U.S. from Canada. Um, and that he's like, that cocaine's all for me. <laughs> it's my cocaine. He's like, well, I don't, you know, I don't care what you do to me. Everything, you know, this is bullshit, whatever. And secretly, he has let Jacques know that. The Popo are coming, or something resembling the Popo. <laughs> and so we go, we flash over, and we see Jacques sort of ambling down the road towards the roadhouse, and he sees like a red flashing light on top of the roadhouse, at which ter- time he turns tail and runs to a payphone and calls Leo to pick him up. 1990 um, payphones. Yeah. Leo leaves to take Jacques on a, quote, border run. They're not going to Taco Bell. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Nope, it's not a Taco Bell situation. Uh, Shelly then, uh, once Leo leaves, Shelly takes a gun from one secret place, I don't remember where it was, maybe her purse, and puts it in another secret place, which is where she's hidden the bloody shirt. Apparently, it's a reference to crime and punishment. I don't know. Mm. What would the reference be? Um, The bloody sock that everyone's hiding 
I've never read Crime and Punishment. Okay. I took Russian literature in a college where we had 10-week we'll sessions. In that time we, we could, could read one book. Exactly. <laughs> right. We read many short stories, uh-huh. a couple of plays by Chekhov, and one book, and that book was the Brothers Karamazov. Oh, we did not get to Crime and Punishment. Apparently she's uh, not putting up with soap in a sock again. No. She's had it, and she's going to shoot him. She's super not going to shoot him, but yeah. we'll see what happens. Um, Cooper is creeping the, at the cemetery. Um, I guess they've separated from so Bernard. The cemetery. And Well, yeah, no, that's true. There's no way to just look nonchalant at no. the cemetery. I'm just hanging out. Especially at night. Don't mind me. So he's there, and he acts as though he's been waiting for the person who arrives. I don't know if he's waiting for someone to arrive and then will, you know, interrogate whoever it is. But it's Dr. Jacoby that shows up. It's indicated that he did not go to the funeral. And he's there wearing, yeah, a cape and a hat because he's a pimp, maybe. He's a tiki pimp. Tiki pimp. Yes. That sounds like an excellent Halloween costume. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, it sounds like a very special episode of Magnum P.I. Ooh. Oh, rest in peace. Oh, yes. So, Jacoby says that he, like, I guess he's burned out or he's a terrible person, but he does not give a shit about his patients. He does not care about them. Uh, he, like, listens to them and takes their money, and that's it. <laughs> like, that's the extent of his emotional involvement. Um, but Laura changed that and made him care again. Now, they had only been seeing each other, seeing each other. They'd only been involved. I can't find a way to make it not sound right. good. She had only it's okay. it's procured okay. his services for, yeah, did he that say, sounded was, no it, less sleazy. Yeah. was it six weeks or six months? I, I can't remember. I was too shocked by his outfit. To, to I was overwhelmed. I can't, yeah, I can't remember. He says that um, he couldn't bring himself to go to the funeral and that he hopes that she understands and forgives him. And then we're going... And I don't see why you'd want, not want to go to the funeral. It's all that anybody will talk about for years. For years. I know you missed a brawl. You missed a father bouncing up and down on his daughter. That no. wasn't ideal. <laughs> um, we go up to the mill house, the Packard home, uh, the mill house, um, where... Josie is talking on the phone to Truman and saying, I think Catherine is plotting against me uh, with uh, Benjamin Horn and trying to take her out somehow so that she can have the mill or he can have the land. She believes that her husband was killed. Uh, Truman says, it was an accident. And I'm like, well, then it, he, it was definitely murder. <laughs> like, he didn't have a heart attack. If it was an accident, he was definitely murdered. Um, he fell down an elevator shaft onto some bullets. Onto some bullets, yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the easiest way to kill a mill owner is in a mill. A yes. mill is a nothing mill but... mill is filled with sharp things. It's a Final Destination movie right. waiting to happen. You could die six ways before you hit the ground. It would be a mess. It would definitely be a mess. Truman says, I swear I'll ne- I won't let anything um, happen to you. People need to stop making promises. Uh, this, is, this is true. Um, and then that, but that whole conversation, Catherine is like listening in 
on a PA system that's right. in the house. So Josie doesn't realize this, which I don't know why. I feel like those things would squeak when you push the button. You but think for then we go back to the hotel. Oh, it is. In the, it's in the dining room of the hotel where um, Cooper is having a drink with Hawk and they're talking about the afterlife. Um, How do you feel about Hawk at this point? And the soul. I really like... Okay, here's how I feel about Hawk. Yay, native character. Mm -hmm. Especially a native character in a place where there would be native Native people. Yay, native character who doesn't appear to be a drunk, Mm -hmm. who, who is in a position of power. Boo... Native character who's got to be a tracker? I mean, come on. Well, what? Also, what, his name bums me out. But granted, I'm sure that there are many Native people with the name Hawk, so... I'm, try- I'm on the, the fence about that, because on the one hand, he is very much a Native American character as visualized by... The white man? Uh, you, you can say it. <laughs> I can. I am, but, a, I am, I am a white. <laughs> but... Um, he's mystical, he says mystical things, he has a name like Hawk, and, and I think the next episode they actually, there's a nice joke on your expectations. Yes, um, absolutely, yes. Which was, I, which was a really nice surprise. But yes, this conversation kind of reminded me, I, at some point I wanted him to call Cooper Kimosabe. There's a whole kind of... Oh, yeah. Very, you know, our people call it maze. So right. <laughs> Um, is he the magical <laughs> engine trope? And, and at the same time, what doesn't come across not as offensive is the fact that so much of this program is done from the point of view of a kind of a Hardy Boys world. Yeah. Where the villains wear Letterman jackets and mm-hmm. the girls wear saddle shoes. We are painting with stereotypes. Right. And if we're going to do that for everybody, we have to do it for everybody. But it's everybody. a very 50s version of, um, or early 60s version of these Native American characters. So he's noble. He's, you know, <laughs> there's that whole thing. and The long hair and everything. He's not sort of like a modern Indian. Right. Well, he does have longer hair. Mm-hmm. But he's also a part of this bookhouse boys. Mm. He's not excluded that way. Right. He doesn't. We haven't seen any. Well, I don't think there's any kind of outward racism, racism towards his character. Right. But what I mean is that he's very much of that of a kind of a '50s sensibility about Native Americans. I don't. This is David Lynch, you know, looking at Tonto as an example oh, okay. of a noble Indian character. And again, it's not necessarily wrong because everyone is so exaggerated in this right. show. Right, yeah. It's not like he doesn't fit into it. He's not the butt of jokes or anything. No, that's true. Although I do think that when, I think when Cooper finds out he's a tracker, he does say something like, oh, of course he is. Right. <laughs> and I think that might also be the same kind of nod mm-hmm. that Lynch does with the twin thing right. of, yeah, we, we know we named him Hawk and made him a tracker. Right. We know. He's also at least at least as good of a detective as right. Truman is. Uh, he's, you know, miles above Andy, but that's not saying a whole bunch. That's not a great basis for comparison <laughs> right. right there. Um, but they're talking in the hotel about souls. Uh, Cooper asks, do you believe in a soul? And Hawk answers several and um, tells about the Blackfoot um, legends about dream, uh, dream souls that wander and find themselves in distant lands. And Cooper asks, is that where Laura is? And Hawk says, Laura's on the ground. That's the only thing I'm sure of. So he is 
he kind of gets to straddle the pragmatic detective side and the mystical Indian side. Um, And then Leland starts, I mean, he's clearly very drunk. um, And he starts begging people to dance with him. No, nobody wants any part yeah, of that. Nobody wants it. Um, and so the two of them sort of take him one on either side and and say, you know, come on, let's let's go home. And that is the end of the episode. Mm. We don't know who the killer is. It's the Wendigo. Oh, is that the evil in the forest? That's the evil in the forest. Is the Wendigo a rapist, or does he have human mm. consorts, like the devil? <laughs> Algernon Blackwood, the story of the Wendigo. Algernon Blackwood, who we owe a lot to, including evil dolls. That man invented the evil doll. Who is Algernon Bra- Blackwood, he, uh, for Algernon anyone Blackwood who doesn't know? is a English writer who is one of the great horror writers of the 20th century. He was the ghost man on radio on the BBC for a long time. But uh, he wrote, oh my God, I'd like to say hundreds of ghost stories. Okay. And some of the most famous ones, he wrote the very first haunted doll story, a doll that wakes up at night. and It's a creepy doll. Oh, yes. He invented that um, as a trope. But he also wrote a story about a group of uh, hunters going into the Canadian wilderness and discovering this sort of evil spirit that lived there that possesses human beings or perhaps imitates human beings okay. and drives people crazy. Uh, and it's a v- supremely creepy, creepy, creepy story. I mean, since then, it's also become a trope. Uh, Stephen King references it in Pet Cemetery. Okay. And there's a lot afterwards, but I'm wondering if this is a tip of a hat to that because it's described in the same kind of language. This big evil nature spirit living in the woods that causes people to do horrible things and yeah, yeah right. So yeah, I Fun. wonder. We've gone X Files all of a sudden. This show went X Files a long time ago, and you can see the obvious influence on X Files. Yeah, the, when did X Files start? We talked about this previously, I think right, like ninety-two or something like that. So it was a little bit later. Than and that. there's there's an obvious through line there, um, with X Files. Right. They were like, if they could do that on TV, mm-hmm. we could definitely do and what we want to do. And later, MathNet, I think. MathNet? MathNet was the culmination of... Do you really mean MathNet? MathNet, yes. From, what is the name Square of that? One. Square One. Square yes. One. Yes. What was it? To, Not uh, MathMan. To serve Same the, show, different thing. No, no. Uh, <laughs> the, the two FBI agents there. Yes. Right. Yes. No, I, I know what you're talking about. For whatever reason, I put that before the X-Files, but I guess it couldn't be because it was a takeoff of the X-Files. Weird. <laughs> Childhood. It's confusing. Um, we In find, so many ways. I've got a little bit of trivia for this episode. Laura's funeral is the first and last time we see the majority of the principal cast together in a scene during the whole series. Mm. Although we did get a whole bunch of them in the opening scene in the, like, town meeting. Right, exactly. Um... And the fact that Laura's identical twin, identical cousin, her name is Madeline as a, a nod to Vertigo, apparently. Oh, that's neat. Where, um... Kim Novak. Kim Novak, yes. Played Madeline Astor and Judy Barton. I have not seen Vertigo. Vertigo is a masterpiece. I need. I know, it's on the list. 
Um, and then also, I guess, Jean Grey in the X-Men mm-hmm. had a double named Madeline, spelled different, also as a Mads of Vertigo. Um, I like Madeline a lot in this so far with her big glasses and her it's big very, feathered yes. brunette hair. And it's just like, I, I expect her to undergo the the transformation at some point to make her beautiful by taking off her glasses and flattening down her hair, but then she'll just turn into Laura and then, and then what will we do? Madeline Lafayette. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you think it's the Wendigo? I think it's the Wendigo. That's who now. you think it is? Pirates, Wendigo. I think it's the Wendigo and Leo. I'm still on Leo. <laughs> like, I mean, I understand that it can't just be Leo because that's what everything is pointing to. Mm-hmm. But man, that dude is a dick. <laughs> like, he's an asshole. So I, I'm still sort of stuck on him. And now Jacques on the run. Bernard is... I wonder what happens to Bernard now. Once the, because they didn't cover their faces. Mm-hmm. He knows who the, they are. Two cops. That's right, it was two cops because Hawk was there. Right. Two cops and an FBI agent has tied you up and, and accused you of a thing that clearly they don't have quote-unquote evidence for because if they did, you, this would be an official visit and not just in some back room exactly. at the book house. But what do you do? What does he do now? See, absolutely. He has to run for the border with his brother, right? Because he can't go to the police to make a complaint. The absolute fear that Truman and the others have in presenting their secret society to an FBI agent. It's pretty sp- is, Well, it, he's a special FBI agent. Uh, yeah, they saw some I sort think of during spirit. the duck conversation, wherein Cooper goes on for like a minute about how adorable and awesome the ducks are, I think that's when Truman was like, oh, he's one of us. That was their test. Is how this does he the feel episode? There's one of these episodes, and I've lost track of which one. He makes a note to his invisible friend, pocket friend, <laughs> his dictaphone that may or may not actually get to a person. Um, that he wants to look into buying some land mm-hmm. up in this area I, I that he remember. expects to go cheap. And I'm like, because of the murder or mm-hmm. because there's a lot of land? Like, yeah. this, that's a weird thing. Um, but yeah, I think he's going to. Oh, he's aware that the Norwegians th- or the Scandinavians. Who was it? The Norwegians? The Norwegians. Norwegians are no longer interested in this property, possibly because of the Wendigo. Right, but I also don't think he wants to buy the whole of Twin Peaks. No. I think he wants to buy a little land. A retirement property in Twin Peaks. Which is crazy, because what is he, 30? He, he seems might retire to... early. Well, I guess. Um, so that is the end of... Although he, he might want to live in Tibet. Talks about Tibet an awful lot. Well, that's because it's how he found his Zen. I don't think he wants to live in Tibet. I think he can go there in his dreams anytime he wants. That's, that's actually true. <laughs> Save lots of plane fare. So much. Do you have a recommendation for our listeners? You don't have a recommendation I, for I our listeners? I had one in this episode, and I forgot completely what it was. Oh, but we, I, it got eaten by the computer. Oh, so you can't tell what to recommend. I just don't want to recommend something I've already recommended. Well, I'll do mine, and then mm-hmm. you can think about okay. it. Okay. So I am going to recommend a movie that is currently in theaters, but will be uh, available to stream you know, in a, a minute and a half or so. Um, it is a remake, and it involves a giant mustache that is doing a lot of Kenneth Branagh's work for him, and that is The Murder on the Orient Express. I saw it this weekend. 
I'd never seen the original, and I'd never read the book. And did PBS do a, co- a version of this one? Um, or was it know, other Poirot I stuff? No, I think it was other Poirot stuff. So I had a zero idea going in. And I know that you were under the impression that this movie could be for no one because who doesn't know? Right. Me! I didn't know! <laughs> I'm the person! Uh, I also went with two other people who also did not know, and none of us could guess. It was a surprise to all of us. I called it a little early, but I normally do. I thought it was really fun. Everybody in it is really acting their butts off. And Kenneth Branagh does a great job in the lead role. It's not his best directorial uh, effort. What would you say his best directorial effort is? Thor. No, I'm kidding. Um, I don't know that, but... I had some problems with the direction in this. Now, granted, there was also scene issues. This whole thing takes place on a train. So there are scenes where it's being shot from overhead, like Mm. you're looking down on the characters, which feels like we're playing a a game at that point. So, Mm. like, move this character here and move this character over here. I'm probably sure that's what he had in mind. Maybe. Um, But I didn't love it. I didn't love that part, but... The whole movie is really good. Like I said, everybody's really doing that acting thing. It's, I mean, it's so Josh Gad, Johnny Depp, Kenneth Branagh, Willem Dafoe, Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, Penelope Cruz. Who else? I'm sure there are others I can't think of right now. They're all told to act big in a small space, and they all do an excellent job of that. Uh, so it's a lot of fun, and I recommend it. Any version of it is probably good, because I think the 60s version... The 60s version uh, was Ingrid Bergman and Sean Connery and Vanessa Redgrave. Mm-hmm. A bunch of big thing. actors acting right. big in a small space. That's what they were so doing. if I like this one, I would probably like that one. Yeah. So Well, it's meant to be, you're distracted by the costumes and the art direction. It's meant to sort of be a big, sumptuous story. And this one is what... Well, yeah. and, and it's funny. There are f- pretty funny parts to it. Um, there's, uh, you know, humor for a, it's a murder mystery and the backstory is sad. Mm-hmm. It's rough. It's a rough story, but there's plenty of humor to the thing and it's, yeah, it's good. I liked it a lot. I give it two thumbs up. This one and this one. I just finished seeing, because we're playing a little bit out of sequence, the climax of Project Runway. But what I wanted to recommend was a moment leading up to that where one of the competitors, Kintaro, is asked when he uh, Tim Gunn goes on a home visit. This is the first ep- of the two finale episodes. Right. Uh, Tim Gunn asks him on a well, home visit. He's gone home. He's got, been given a budget to create a collection. What inspired this very unusual... Um, and really striking-looking collection, and um, he plays a piano piece, and he's actually a very talented composer. It's very haunting, kind of, and when he's... He volunteers, rather. He's not asked about this, um, that this was inspired by finding the corpse of a cat along the side of a road, which he then buries, and after he buries it, he hears this coming up from the earth to him, and he's doing this dead serious. There's no... Th- this is not... He's not pulling Tim Gunn's leg. But the look on Tim Gunn's face was the moment I cherish for the entire season. He was 
very confused. Flabbergasted. And again. But he also knew he wasn't being messed with. Right. Because I think if it was a joke, he would have played it off like a joke. He did not. It was very sincere and very weird. What I described last time is that it's very unusual I have a relationship with this show at all. I like anything that talks about the creative process. And um, and so, uh, great work of art, yeah. that show. I missed that show. Um, they only did the Chef. one season? They did two. Oh, okay. Um, there were two winners. Uh, Top Chef. Um, there was um, anything that, or even Forged in Fire, anything that actually... It will kill! <laughs> describes how something comes from something abstract in your imagination actually works itself out. I, I like shows like that. And so Project Runaway is a weird one because I only wear one color. Yes, that color is black. It's not even a color. no respect for fashion at all as a thing personally. But I really admire the kind of creativity that happens when these people work under uh, restrictions. So it's interesting to me, but that moment, I think, was the great moment of the season. And for several seasons back, that is just my absolute favorite, the look on Tim Gunn's face, trying to understand this really weird source of inspiration. And he just leans back on his heels and is quiet for 20 seconds in the cut. Right. My guess is he was quiet for significantly longer than yes, that. I'm sure there was that And just says, well, that's fantastic. Right. What are you going to say? Because I, <laughs> I was always searching, in watching all these programs, I'm always searching for the moment where somebody comes up with an inspiration that's really stunning and completely out of left field, and this was it. Yeah. I've been waiting for this for a very long time, and it was a very rewarding moment where the ghost of a dead cat calls out to you and inspires not only a piece of music, but your, your uh, what was it, fall? Was it, it was a spring-summer collection. Spring-summer collection, right, exactly. yeah. Inspired by a, a deceased cat. No spoilers on who wins. No, I'm not going to say anything <laughs> about that. I, but this was my moment. This is, whatever happened after this. Yeah, this was, was the Kentaro's home visit in the part one of the two-part finale. Right. Now... As of the time of this taping, the reunion for this season is on tomorrow, and we are very excited about it. Indeed. It's going to be a shit show. Um, yes. <laughs> like, in the best possible way? In the best possible way. It was this is wild, what reality TV is for. Right. It was a wild and bizarre season, and there's going to be all sorts of accusations and things, and there was cheating, and there were twins, which I'm convinced weren't really fashion designers. You think sort of that their performance piece. art, I think that they might be AI. Because, yeah, they're just very strange and they inhabit their own world and um, they don't seem to understand that there are consequences to actually cheating on a show yeah. with really high prizes, really, you know. Oh, yeah, the prizes money. now are bananas. It's over a half a million there dollars. There's an Oprah Winfrey scale to what people get. It's crazy now. now. Yeah, it's, it, it went from like, Here's ten thousand dollars to like, here's fifty thousand dollars and a car right. and a job for a year and these companies are all donating hundreds of or thousands of dollars worth of stuff to you right, exactly. and you're gonna go on a trip to do a fellowship somewhere. I mean it's crazy the yeah. amount of stuff that they're giving away now and yeah to be like and then well it was just a basic tank top. Well, then why did you need to trace it, girl? Right, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a very interesting season, and it, but in terms of... 
just way out inspiration. Yeah. That Dead was cat. That, cat me, that was it. Okay. I think we did it. Yes, we did. And I think it recorded the whole thing. I hope so. So, we're hopeful that I don't mess it up. And we have our episode for tomorrow. I have faith in you. So, this is the end of the episode where I say thank you so much for listening. If you have anything you want to tell us or ask us, you can email us at latecomerspod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at latecomerspod at latecomerspod. I'm on Twitter at Amity Armstrong. Hey, do you have Twitter? Um, I have yet to tweet. No tweets. No, not yet. No handle? Mm. At Man in Black. I don't, that's not his Twitter handle. It's no, somebody's it's not. probably. Yes, it's I'm not sure his. It um, and probably not Johnny Cash's either. Rest in peace. Sadly. Um, what else do we say? We say thank you to the Freak Show Fandango for our theme song, Late As Usual. We say... This is why I have it written down, but I'm so scared to change no, off of this recording no. thing because I'm watching these peaks like they're my children and I'm nurturing them. There's far less trouble than actual children. Uh, that's why these are my children and you did your thing. Um, so that, I think, is this week's episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you for not abandoning us after we missed an episode and I'm sorry and hopefully it won't happen again I'm going to do my best um oh now I have to come up with a cute sign off or do you really like better late than never I actually like better late than never haha we did it our sign off better late than never bye guys bye